Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Mashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today we're talking about Kim Campbell. The Right Honorable. You have to make sure you say that. Kim Campbell was Canada's first and only female prime minister. She was the first and only female prime minister. And she became prime minister in 1993. Can we just emphasize that? She is the one and only. Honestly, considering that we live in this supposedly feminist country is a little bit disheartening. Katie, I don't know how you feel about it. I think she feels the same way. (laughs) It's hard to talk about this because I want to say she led the Conservatives to a historic defeat, but we're going to problematize that, so Mm -hmm. TBD. Uh, In 1993, the party fell to just two seats, losing official party status, and Ms. Campbell resigned. Should we talk about early Kim Campbell? Sure. Kim Campbell wasn't... uh... Kim's name when she was born, was it, Katie? Let's start there. She was born in Port Alberni, B.C. She was born Avril Phaedra Douglas Campbell. Kim is actually a name that she gave herself when she was about 12 and went at boarding school. She and her sister learned her mother had moved away to Europe without telling them. She said that she says that changing her name was something she did after her mother left kind of as a coping mechanism. She's not from a political family. She's hardly one of the Laurentian elite. As we talk about in Canada, she's she's from BC. She grew up in BC. She got her start in politics in Vancouver. She went to high school in Vancouver. And she had very early political ambitions. Yeah. She was Prince of Wales Secondary School's first female student council president in high school. <laughs> it starts in high school, doesn't it? It always starts in high school. She's got one sister called Alex, who she seems to be quite close with. Should we talk about her rise? Political science is her background. She studied political science. She calls herself, well, she is, I guess, a Soviet specialist, uh, is how she describes it. 
She was working towards her doctorate at the London School of Economics, but she didn't complete it. She then ended up in law school. She's a lawyer. She practiced law for three years in Vancouver. She always says that she served, you know, three levels of government. She began mm-hmm. her political life while at law school. She was a tr- school board trustee at the Vancouver School Board, where she would eventually become the chair. She then set her sights on provincial politics. She ran for a seat in the BC legislature in 1883, where she was unsuccessful. She ran in the riding of Vancouver Centre, which would end up being her riding in, uh, in federal politics. She then was elected to the legislature in 1986 in Vancouver Point Grey. Uh, 86, she ran for social credit party leadership. She actually came in last, but that didn't discourage her. Liv, can you explain what the social credit movement is and tell us a little bit about Kim Campbell's party, the Social Credit Party? The Social Credit Party has basically disappeared in Canada, but they did have some success in the 20th century in provincial politics, mostly in BC and Alberta. So the Social Credit Party was founded on the values of the social credit movement, which is expected, I I imagine. But uh, so this was mostly a conservative political movement and this movement was mostly economic so they believed that economic hardship resulted from the inefficiencies in capitalism and thus they advocated for the redistribution of money to bulk up consumer purchasing power but by the second half of the 20th century the socreds had basically ditched the socred ideology therefore at the point that kim campbell became a Socred, the party was mostly mainstream conservative. Kim Campbell was part of the progressive wing of the Socreds, and she continued to be part of the progressive wing of the federal progressive conservatives when she changed parties. When Kim Campbell becomes an MLA, which means member of the Legislative Assembly in BC, She's very quickly an outsider within the party. She publicly breaks with the premier, Bill Vandersam, on abortion, and she generally isn't buying what he's selling. Um, and she certainly doesn't have very many nice things to say about Vandersam in her memoir. She she doesn't get a portfolio in D.C., so she's not a cabinet minister of Vandersam's. And at this time, she kind of describes herself as being on the fringes of the party, and she certainly feels that way. Which then makes sense why she left the party altogether and jumped to the Conservatives and federal politics a mere two years later. So in 1988, Kim Campbell was elected as a member of Parliament for Vancouver Centre. She became Minister of State for Indian Affairs and Northern Development, making her the junior minister of uh, Indian Affairs and Northern Development. Just a year later, she was appointed Minister of Justice and Attorney General. And that's what seemed to to give her significant attention and raise her profile in a meaningful way. What, kind of, what did she achieve as Minister of Justice? So in her role as uh, the Minister of Justice, the abortion debate was at its height. And, uh, sorry, the Supreme Court of Canada had struck down one of the prevailing laws. And actually one of her first bills as Minister of Justice was to legalize abortion. But... Of course, the bill eventually died in the Senate, as so many bills do, but its effect was to render the criminal code free from abortion regulation. 
Also, in response to the uh, 89 Ecole Polytechnic massacre, she introduced gun control legislation, which made many weapons illegal that were previously available and uh, limited the size of magazines, despite a ton of pushback from her conservative colleagues. The 1991 bill strengthened background checks. It created uh, waiting periods for purchasing guns. There were new safe storage and transportation regulations. And, and lots of these are still in operation. I have a really interesting quote from her about gun control. She also connects this law to violence against women. As we know, she is a, a great champion for women. She says, too many of the domestic homicides that occur in Canada each year involve a firearm. Easy access to a gun in a domestic dispute is an invitation to tragedy. To add on to that, she also amended provisions of the criminal code um, in regards to sexual assault. She introduced rape shield legislation, and these changes protected women who brought claims of sexual assault that eventually made it into the courtroom from the defense lawyers prying into their sexual history. And what's interesting is that she did spend time as Minister of Justice focusing on issues that, that affect women. And I think that that's something we see when women step into positions of power, that they do take the opportunity to deal with issues that are specific to women and think about issues that are specific to women in a different way than any man can because of their own lived experience. Okay, so while we're talking about her time as the Minister of Justice, do you want to take a moment to talk about the nude photo? It's not nude. No, okay, the, the robe, the photo of the robes. So the picture is Kim Campbell, and all you can see of her is basically from her shoulders up, and in front of her she's holding legal robes, and it gives the appearance that she is nude, but she was in fact not nude at the shoot. At, at this particular time, this was the 90s, so pictures of naked women generally were regarded as being, were, I guess we could say villainized by people on the right, and then people on the left denounced them as forms of sexual violence. But in an article that I read called The Media and Unmaking of a Prime Minister, he said, to Canada's credit, the vast majority of it saw it as clever, daring, refreshing, suggesting that there was a flesh and blood person behind the trappings of the office and liked the political risk. So she became a QC. That's why she got the robes. She accepted QC from British Columbia shortly after her appointment. I should um, say, just for people who don't know, what is QC? Queen's Council. It's for people who are special, who have been probably practicing for a while. They call it taking silk because you get supposedly get silk robes. I don't. Well, she got the robes. She said, when I did receive the appointment, I turned to this tailor, a young photographer, Barbara Woodley, met me at my house to take my picture. My picture. She suggested I take my picture with my cello. 
I demurred because it had already been done and I am not a professional cellist. Perhaps you could hold them in front of you, she mused. We both realized that holding the robes while I was fully dressed would look silly, but we had no idea at the time that her photo of me, bare-shouldered, and holding the robes on a hanger would become so notorious two years later. Okay, that's a little naive. Right? Come on, Kim Campbell. I think it, I like it. I think it's fun. But I'm saying, <laughs> I know that was going to be a situation. But I just think, from her perspective, how did how did she think it was going to be received? It was it was obvious that it would make a splash. I think it's great you know? and I think it's fun. I'm into it. But I think she's either lying, which is whatever, she's a politician, or she's not. And she is that naive. And it's like... But listen, according to Christopher uh, Dornan, Canada was also into it. I think it's also refreshing to hear that the, the vast majority found it to be darling, you know? And there's also, like, nothing sexual about it, right? Like, it's but a shoulder. In 1993, she was appointed Minister of Defense and Veterans Affairs. She was the first female defense minister Canada's ever had. And she was also the first woman to be a defense minister of a NATO country. So, because she was the first female defense minister... I think it actually helped also to elevate her image to really highlight that she was this new new face and she was breaking the mold of the old boys club and I think perfectly positioned her for the next part of the story uh, where she runs for leadership of the conservative party. Shall we spend any time talking about Maroonie's demise or shall we just say that he was resigned in disgrace and move on there were not to get into too in detail there were several scandals that had 10 high-profile cabinet ministers resign at this time he had a nickname it's the only thing i remembered about him from childhood because my dad called him this lion brian oh yeah um he was <laughs> extraordinarily unpopular and Maybe he, he he either recognized that his party would have no chance in the, in the election with him at the helm, or he was just jumping off a burning ship. At the end of Maruni's term, in a nation of 27 million people, 1.6 million were unemployed. The national debt was enormous and climbing, and the annual deficit was extraordinary. Also, the relationship with Quebec was very tumultuous, which never helps a party about to go into an election. But just to say what what the mess that Brian Maroney made, the relationship that he left with Quebec was in turmoil because of the collapse of the Meech-like Accord and the rejection of the referendum of the Charlotte Chan Accord. So he bears, you know, responsibility for the horrible relationship with Quebec that he left, and all this to say that Maroney left a huge mess, which, to be honest, it's up for debate whether the most perfect candidate in the world could have saved the Conservative Party. Well, Maroney resigns in 1993, triggering a leadership race for the Progressive Conservative Party. Let's now turn to the leadership race. Campbell won, but um, 
she was kind of handpicked by the party to be the leader and she ran a terrible campaign that actually almost ended up losing her the race because she was like she was handpicked by the party the party wanted her to win so also in the running was uh jean charret which i thought was interesting yeah because he also went on to have a political career he would become premier of quebec Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and although he didn't win this race this was one of the things that did raise his political profile Sorry, she becomes prime minister because, of course, Brian Mulroney, when he resigned, was prime minister. So after she won the leadership race, she became the prime minister, the first female prime minister of Canada. And during her time in office, although it was brief, her party's ratings grew from 19% to 36%. On the eve of the federal election, she has very, very high approvals. People are really excited. Supposedly women are really excited about this female prime minister. And... I think part of the reason why she was handpicked was because so many of the other, like Mulroney's most trusted guys, because they were guys, had resigned or were tainted by Mulroney. She was green enough and new enough and a rising star and a new face. So despite all the improvements that she had made in the Conservative Party, it did not come to fruition. In fact, it came to a crushing defeat. So, Katie, what happened? Let's talk about the election. I went into this with a hypothesis that Kim Campbell is probably really unfairly maligned. It was probably all Mulroney's fault anyway, and that she was really unfairly treated by the media. And I do think all that is true. Well, most of that is true. But I she made some real mistakes in this election in terms of why they lost i don't think we can pretend to know exactly what proportion each problem contributed to the conservatives epic loss but we can try (laughs) i think that we can definitely speculate that a huge portion behind her loss was everything that we've said before about the terrible state the conservative party was in okay so i think i've kind of broken it down into the big factors one i want to begin with is the makeup of the campaign is the people part of the reason she gives for the campaign being such a disaster was that the campaign was full of Mulroney people it was really not her staff she didn't really have a relationship to these people she hadn't worked with them very much you know her campaign manager john tory yes that one they had only met a few times before they were embarking on this crazy journey together right and the campaign began so quickly after she became leader there's also lots of rumors swirling about how the staff was getting on and how she was working with them and and again we don't know how much of this is media speculation how much of this is sexism and people being butthurt about having to take orders from a woman supposedly there was infighting in the campaign people claim she didn't take the advice she was given and these critiques are just so hard to vet and corroborate because a lot of it sounds like difficult woman trope you know but it's certainly possible that anyone any politician can probably be a nightmare to deal with i just it's, it's really hard to know. So this is, what, this is the information that we have. I think the natural next place to go are gaffes by Kim Campbell herself. She made several gaffes on the campaign trail. 
the first gaffe happens just right off the bat, the day the writ is dropped. For those who don't know, in Canada, the election campaign begins in earnest when the writ is dropped. On this day, she's talking to the press. She gets asked, how long will Canadians have to wait before the unemployment rate drops below 10%? She answers, realistically, all developed industrialized nations are expecting what I would consider to be an unacceptable level of unemployment for the next two, three, or four years. And I would like to see by the turn of the century, a country where the unemployment is way down, where we're paying our national debt, and where there's a whole new vision of the future opening up for Canadians. So supposedly, according to people in the campaign, the phones of the campaign headquarters are ringing within five minutes. And of course, almost as quickly, the liberal leader, Jean Chrétien, gets out there and says, well, our party is going to create jobs right now. You don't have to wait for the turn of the century. This gaffe is... It's a gaffe, it's a mistake, whatever, but I do think it's so emblematic of who she is as a person and a politician in the, maybe this is too much, giving her too much credit, but I do think you put this in the call of Kim Kim being a little bit too honest, which we do see from her, I think quite a bit, and, and we'll get into that more, but, you know, she's always talking about seeing herself as a different kind of politician, and she says, you know, you tell the truth and they call it a gaffe, and I mean, her answer is probably true. Like, this is a recession. And she you can tell she's trying to be honest in the moment. And what she kind of did was create a pretty bleak picture during the campaign when you're supposed to be blowing sunshine up the electorate's ass, for lack of a better phrase. You know, she's very concerned with cynicism. She's, people are tired of the old politics and the empty rhetoric, and they're tired of promises. Bottom line, the best way to address the question of cynicism is to tell the truth. And this is Kim Campbell. It was certainly a layup for her liberal critics. So at the time, a reporter asked her about what she had said and, and said, you know, why are you being so negative? Why aren't you being more hopeful? And Campbell disputed this. And she responded by saying that maybe you needed a hearing aid because she was being hopeful. And of course, many Canadians do need hearing aids including the Ottawa Bureau Chief of the Globe and Mail. I think, you know, when you piss off the Ottawa cheer Bureau Chief of the Globe and Mail, it's got to have some effect on media coverage. So I think that is ableist and wrong, what she said and her comments, absolutely. So that's that's the one of the next gaffes. And this is Bob Fife, who is a fairly famous Canadian reporter, who asked this question, but I'm looking at what he asked her and I do hate the question, to be honest. He says, Prime Minister, we've just come out of a bad recession as we did in 1984 when Prime Minister Romarudin was, was running and he promised jobs, jobs, jobs. Mr. Kushan has torn that same page out. He's promising jobs, jobs, jobs. It's only day two, but what kind of hope are you offering to Canadians who are out of work, who are on welfare? I mean, phrase, framing it as hope, I think is kind of silly. Right. And that's what she's saying. Ask me about my jobs plan. Don't ask me about how I'm making people hopeful. I mean, I, I get that that is unofficially the role of a leader, but ask her about the policy. You know, I, I do. I don't think it's a great question. She was offered. She was asked. I think her answer was wrong and kind of disgusting. And she really regrets this in her book. She says, oh, I shouldn't have let myself get too testy. <laughs> You know, she says she kind of, she was angry and she kind of barked back. Not that that's an excuse for what she said. The next gaffe <laughs> is the serious issues gaffe. Did you read about this one? When asked about reforming Canada's social programs, she says, 
this is not the time to get involved in a debate on very, very serious issues. <laughs> That's the worst possible time to have that kind of dialogue because I think it takes longer than 47 days. Well, what is an election if not the electorate deciding on very serious issues and, and which ones matter and, and who they want to be weathering through these serious issues, right? That quote is just it's got to be one of the most like embarrassing quotes to have associated with you as a politician. Yeah, and obviously this was read me to her critics, and it, it creates a really it creates a you know it creates an ad in itself. You know, it is an ad, like an easy roast, right? But again, you know what she's saying. Yeah, she's saying these issues are important, and Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, we're not going to figure this out in this during this election, which is true, but. You still have to have a plan. You still have to have a progress memo. You gotta have a, you, you gotta have something. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speculate on why, but she does like throughout all these gaffes, she is just being a little bit too honest to a detriment that she's stopped herself from playing the game. Like, of course we know during political campaigns there's a lot of shallow talk, a lot of shallow rhetoric that sometimes doesn't amount to anything, but it's it's part of building an image. It's part of apparently bringing hope to Canadians about the promise of a brighter future, right? Which she just refuses to play into during this campaign. Yeah. I do think it is her being too a little uh-huh. too honest. A lot of the time which is i think kind of ironic because she's kind of got a reputation for being elitist and unrelatable she's a she's a real paradox this girl i think that we have to talk about the role of sexism and some of her media treatment during this time and again it, it's it's hard to attribute a certain amount to, to any uh-huh. of these things but the media was very on her about her appearance she was criticized for she had a pair of earrings she really liked apparently she wore all the time i forget who it was comments about her looking stout in her jacket comments about her bleached hair because she has that she's like platinum blonde hair critics talk about her stamina in a way that i i can't tell if is that it would seem to set off alarm bells as be coded things like i don't see her i don't think her focus was there she was tired she was exhausted and it's like i don't know maybe she was exhausted campaigning is so hard She'd never done this before. She just finished the leadership race minutes before hitting the trail for the federal election. It's it's kind of hard to weed out what's what's fair and, and what's sexism, but she certainly feels like she just she says things like, I can't I just couldn't understand why I never got the benefit of the doubt from the media. Well there has been a good amount of social science that deals with the 93 leaders debate coverage specifically in order to to attempt to quantify how she was marginalized by the media and in an article called filtering the female what they highlight was that the media tends to marginalize women when they fail to conform to just traditionally masculine norms of political behavior but then overemphasize the behavior um that are that are traditionally associated with female stereotypes and so as a result what they say happened to kim campbell in this debate was that any time that she showed 
traits that are typically associated with uh, masculinity that are more aggressive they were overemphasized by the media and the media reporters would call out any time that she yelled they would kind of like exaggerate how aggressive she was and of course something that we know about political debates is that (laughs) they're not necessarily a spectator sport what tends to happen is that the media's coverage of the debate well really shapes the discourse that comes out of it and I think that that's why this particular study is interesting because you can see, you actually see an event where probably the average Canadian doesn't sit and watch the whole debate, doesn't necessarily have their own opinions about the debate, their opinions result from the media coverage. And so we can really get a sense of how the media was treating her from this debate and how it would then go on to shape the opinions of Canadians. Oh, and what was also just as an aside interesting about that particular leadership race was that there was actually two female leaders who were running. Of course, Kim Campbell and then Audrey uh, McLaughlin. And so in in these studies, you could see that uh, it wasn't just about Kim Campbell. It was also about how Audrey was um, portrayed in the media. And of course, she was a less aggressive, quote unquote, than Kim Campbell and... Um, and received less coverage. So it's it's hard to say because she was not a part of a competitive party in the same way if if that if that mattered or not. And so it'll be I think as as these studies hopefully keep coming back because there's more female politicians, it'll be interesting to see how the social science develops and, and where we get to in twenty years. I'm you know, stay tuned. We come to the climax of this tragic story with what is now known as the face ad. Liv, what's the face ad? These ads basically were a series of pictures of Jean Chrétien's face, and what the voiceover was basically suggesting was that because he was ugly or had this deformity that he he wouldn't be fit to... um, be in office and and that he would somehow be a, a national embarrassment. And so, you know, they were incredibly offensive. Let's hear what Jean Chrétien himself thought about the face ad. Last night, the Conservative Party reached a new low. They tried to make fun of the way I look. God gave me a physical defect. And I've accepted that since I'm a kid. It's true that I speak on one side of my mouth. I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides of my mouth. So this ad sparked a ton of outrage. It was a huge deal. Kim Campbell addresses the controversy at length in her book, Time and Chance. So I'll give a short excerpt from her memoir on this. I thought we had hit rock bottom. I was disabused of this notion by the misery that unfolded over the week beginning Friday, October 13th. Tom was in charge of our advertising, and when I'd spoken to him earlier in the campaign about positive negative advertising, he had emphasized that any negativity would be in the message, not in visual images, and that's really specific. It's funny because that's true, and it's weird that he's he's like you know it's it's not a bad image of him it's it's a normal image of him but it's like that's that's not the issue how you characterize it it's it's 
Yeah, it's how you characterize it. It's the context that you give. Like, the fact that it's, like, a nice picture of Jean Chrétien makes no difference if you're saying something horrendous about him on the voiceover. Like, it's just... It's so weird how they're, like, justifying it to themselves. They're like, well, we're saying something mean, but it's a nice picture of him. He looks great. Fit for the cover of Maclean's. Like, what? He explicitly said any pictures of Chrétien would be neutral. When we finally received the video and ran it in my hotel room, I was mortified. The ads were stupid and offensive. And this is true. If our goal was to show that Kim Campbell was new and different, this was hardly the way to do it. Why would you ever okay an ad to run without seeing it? Even if you didn't see it, why would you admit to not seeing it? Yeah, well, you're throwing people under the bus. You're admitting that you are not in control of your own campaign, which is, I think, not a thing that you want to be admitting either. Especially for a woman, if you already are suspected of not being equipped to be a leader because you're a woman, because we're not used to seeing women, I think it's probably even, maybe even, it's unfairly more devastating that your your campaign is out of control because you're already suspected of being someone who's probably not equipped to lead. Maybe for her, because she's such a, I'm trying to get in her brain again, but she's such a principled person that maybe for her, it's not even, it's not even about the election at this point it's like her integrity i think she cares about that more than she cares about winning i think that's why she probably wasn't gonna win a lot of things they were doing so poorly in the polls before the face ad that this might have been what absolutely sank her knowing what i know about her i wouldn't be shocked if this was her trying to preserve her integrity she saw the writing on the wall for the election and she just thought i'm not going down for this i didn't i didn't do this and i don't want to be attached to this for the rest of history. So the campaign ends and the conservatives are, for lack of a better word, destroyed. They have lost official party status. The party falls from a majority government to just two seats. Um, Kim Campbell lost her own seat. It was the worst defeat, and I think, in Canadian, of any ruling party in Canadian political history. And it led eventually to the party being uh, reformed and and it paved the way for the Conservative Party of Canada, which is you know the latest iteration of what was once the Progressive Conservative Party. The Progressive Conservative Party itself never recovered from this event. And I think though Kim Campbell does get some flack for that, for how the campaign was run, I do think there's a lot of pieces, more than I thought, that lay a lot of blame at Mulroney's feet and the like the unpopularity, the recession, like the economic circumstances of Canada at the time. We're talking like 11.3% unemployment and a conservative party, which was really quite hated for, you know, some of the like high profile resignations and, and people were really unhappy with the instruction of the GST, the Gulf War, the, the stream of scandals that had 10 cabinet ministers resigning, the two failed constitutional projects, the like and Charlottetown Accords left much of Quebec completely disillusioned from the Conservatives. We're also seeing the rise of the Bloc Québécois. We're seeing the rise of the Reform Party in Alberta, led by Stephen Harper, which would later uh, join with the PCs to form the Conservative Party of Canada. There were a lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons for this to be, for this to have a pretty terrible result for the Conservatives, but this kind of defeat was was pretty historic and, and pretty amazing. I want to talk about her politics, though. 
in terms of like diving into her actual positions, I don't know if there's really a place for Kim Campbell in our political landscape. I mean, she certainly doesn't belong in the Conservative Party of Canada. She, in these days she gets asked every now and then whether she's still a conservative and she's given a few different answers to this. Avashi Capello's asked her this in 2019. She said, well, I've never joined the Conservative Party of Canada. And I think Joe Clark expressed it when he said he didn't leave the party, the party left him. Um, she's very critical of the Conservative Party on climate. She talks about climate a lot. This is a woman who's been pro-choice since the 80s. Um, she's been openly a feminist. She doesn't really have a place anymore. She's also She still seems to be like staunchly fiscally conservative, but she was on a podcast episode with Jesse Brown, he was doing these uh, short form, what he calls isolation interviews. And she talks about a successful UBI project in Finland and how she thinks it's, she was praising what this study found that people weren't disincentivized not to work. This is universal basic income. It's a obviously a lefty policy. So she's somebody who I find her really hard to figure out because she does, she's very, I mean, politicians say they're not partisan, whatever. She talks about how she didn't feel super partisan and she didn't really have allegiance to a party when she got started and she kind of had to like pick a party and that was weird for her. And I kind of rolled my eyes at that when I read that, but I, I think it's kind of true. I mean, she she's very nerdy. She's very into policy. She's kind of a, she seems to be a bit more of a pragmatist. She's about what works generally. I mean, she definitely has principles. She is fiscally conservative till the cows come home. She's always very concerned about the debt and the deficit. The more time I've spent with her, the more I think that her not being a partisan might actually be the truth. Yeah, but I think that it's also a little unfair for us to just try to put her into a box and leave her on the shelf, you know? I think that it's interesting when people have political nuances, and I think that those political nuances aren't given enough airtime. I think an open debate is healthy, and I think that I, it makes sense, obviously, why pol politicians have to pick political parties to align with. That's that's the way the system works. But, you know, she hasn't been in politics since 1993, right? She she left the political life, and so I, I think that we can... I don't, I don't feel the need to put her into a box, you know? Like, I, I think, you know, she's not a conservative. She hasn't been a conservative for 27 years. I don't need to pretend like she's a conservative you know i just think it's fascinating because i think it's yeah no sure, totally i think what though she's the exceptional circumstance because she when she left politics she left politics and that isn't the case necessarily for everybody especially people who are go on to be prime minister they don't tend to just leave right away i think that there is a lot more speculation around her for that reason if she had stayed in i think it would be harder for her to take that nonpartisan approach you know because what she was in for a couple of years and during the time that she was in, she actually was in two different parties, you know, <laughs> which not a ton of people can say, except for if your name is Belinda. Where is she now? What is she up to? She tweets a lot about Trump. She once treated, tweeted, he really is a motherfucker. <laughs> um, I forget what it was in response to. Doesn't need to be in response that. to anything. <laughs> I guess not. In anticipation of Hurricane Dorian, she tweeted, I'm rooting for a direct hit on Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> and uh, she got a lot of hate for that. Um, of course she did. It's Twitter. 
Eric Trump replied to her too. Oh, cool. She talks a lot about women and women in politics. She gives, you know, she's obviously she's got a speaking agency. She gives a lot of speeches. Yeah. The CBC trots her out to talk about women shit. She was it's talking about Hillary Clinton a lot during the 2016. It is election. like CBC has her on fucking speed dial. She when. Ever there is a woman in politics story, even if it like touches it with a ten foot pole, she is on the CBC talking about women yeah. in politics. Which I think she has the free time. I think she does too. Listen, I think we should give her a call and see if she'll come talk to two nobodies from uh, from Ottawa Law two who are blonde. Two nobodies who are blonde. Yeah, we got one thing in common. She was on CBC really recently addressing the commentary on Christopher Freeland's appointment as a finance mm-hmm. minister. She was addressing critiques that Christopher Freeland, because she never worked in finance on Bay Street, was not qualified. And she makes good arguments. She's a good yeah. speaker. She said, you know, she says Christopher Freeland was a journalist at the Financial Times. She was an editor, and she's been in the cabinet table for five years. She's kind of talking about how why is the bar so much higher for women. Yeah, she she always does. I think she's a good, she's great. When I was initially reading, you know, I, I was re- reading kind of profiles critical of her that she had no experience and she was too green. And I thought that was kind of bullshit. But because I'm looking like she's, as she always says, she served at every level and she was in the school board and, and then she was in an MLA and then she was an MP. And I have to say, though, when you dive into, you know, she was in the school board for a while. She's at law school. Okay, great. And then she was an MLA for two years, really short. She was, she was an cabinet minister. She was an MP, and was in, she was an MP, and she's immediately a cabinet minister. She was justice minister for was her really her longest job for less than three years. I mean, I think that she was a rising star who just maybe rose a little too quickly. And I, I just, I truly wonder how much maybe another term in a really high profile portfolio like Justice, like she was, might have made her a little less naive in how she mm. dealt with the media, that she might have been a little more savvy and learned to bite her tongue a bit more. And she might have had more staying power. I do think it's a shame that she had this historic defeat and then she just disappeared from Canadian mm-hmm. politics almost entirely. Because I think that. She is somebody who is very talented, has political skills. And I like the idea of her brand of politics. I believe her when she talks about how, you know, concerns she has about cynicism. And and I do believe she wants to be a different kind of politician, even if maybe yeah. she doesn't have the clearest idea of what that means. You know, I do think we need more Kim Campbell in general. Yeah. I think also going along with that, her, her time in office is necessarily shaped by the fact that she left right after right and so she she kind of left with this tragic defeat and didn't have time to rebuild her image have time to rebuild her brand and i think that had she continued to serve maybe she's still in office now we might look back at that election and hold her less accountable i don't know i but i think it would change how we we talk about her in that time period what else she's been doing i mean right after uh, right after they lost she becomes the consul general in la apparently she seems to like living in the states oh my god that's that job sounds so dreamy she's you know she works like some with some pro-democracy international organizations women's organizations you know obviously she does give speeches she created a college in the university of alberta uh, in 2014, 
she's the chair of the advisory board for Supreme Court appointments, which is a pretty cool job. If you want to keep up with her, she's on Twitter. <laughs> and she's got a website, which she likes to plug. So I think that we would be remiss not to plug kimcampbell.ca. Check it out. See you next week. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 